I have heard it said that when any strange, supernatural, and necromantic adventure has occurred to a human being, that being, however desirous he may be to conceal the same, feels at certain periods torn up, as it were, by an intellectual earthquake, and is forced to bear the inner depths of his spirit to another. I am a witness to the truth of this. I have dearly sworn to myself never to reveal to human ears the horrors to which I once, in excess of fiendly pride, delivered myself over. The holy man who heard my confession and reconciled me to the church is dead. None knows that once. Why should it not be thus? Why tell a tale of impious tempting of providence and soul-subduing humiliation? Why? Answer me, ye who are wise in the secrets of human nature. I only know that so it is, and in spite of strong resolve, of a pride that too much masters me, of shame, and even of fear, so to render myself odious to my species, I must speak. HPPodcraft.com Boy, I know that feeling. Shame pride. <laughs> well, you know, it's where you feel pretty bad about something you've done, but then maybe a little bit proud of it, too. I certainly know shame. I'm not proud of it. <laughs> I've been I've been thinking about that phrase, that phrase, I'm not proud of it, because it's often used defensively. I'm not proud of it. Right. But nobody ever says that about something any reasonable person would ever be proud of. Oh, right. Of course. You know, you never give somebody a bowl of soup and say, that's oh, a little bland. I'm not proud of it. <laughs> it's always more like, Chad, did you pass out in front of my house last night in a tube top with no pants on? <laughs> Look, I'm not proud of it, but I'm not ashamed of it either. What was that lovely passage we heard at the beginning of the show? That was from Mary Shelley's short story. Transformation. Mm. Lovecraft, he liked Shelley, so we figured we'd give this a go on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We are here at hppodcraft.com. My name is Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And our reader is Greg Johnson. Greg, he's back once again. You fellas just made another short Lovecraft spoof, didn't you? Did we? You did. I heard about it and I watched it and I liked it. We did. It's called Pikmin's Guest. It stars myself and Greg. We wrote it and directed it together and it's funny? It is funny. It's definitely funny. People say it's funny, and I agree. You know, people are saying that it's funny. <laughs> I've heard that just now. Also features music by Reber Clark. It is sort of, actually, it's a prequel to Pikmin's model. Yes. If you're familiar with the story, my character, man, I play Pikmin, but Greg is Bosworth, who's one of the guys from the, the art club. Mm-hmm. So he mentions Bosworth in the story. Yeah. We're kind of showing you what happened when Bosworth came over to check out Pikmin's artwork. So if you didn't understand Pikmin's model, then this you have to watch this. and It'll make the whole story <laughs> make sense to you. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. So everybody needs to check it out. We will link out to it in our show notes. You can also just search Pikmin's Guest in YouTube because that's the title of it, right? Pikmin's Guest? Pikmin's Guest. It is the one and only thing on YouTube called Pikmin's Guest. So check it out, folks. And uh, today we're going to talk to Mary Shelley, finally having her on the show. Yes, this is the first story by Mary Shelley we've ever covered. She was born in the year 1797, died in the year 1851. She wrote some stuff between those dates. <laughs> Great bio. Very good. Con- concise. 
Well, we are planning on covering Frankenstein at some point later this year, right? Yes, absolutely. Lovecraft, he was crazy for that book. I like it a lot as well. Me too. And we'll certainly talk a little bit more about her life in that coverage. Yeah. But because that book is so popular, folks aren't as familiar with her other novels and short stories, many of which had to do with science and the supernatural. Mm -hmm. This story was published in the annual Keepsake for 1831. Now, I like, I really dig 1960s genre paperbacks. I have a bunch of them. Mm -hmm. And just recently, I picked up one called Masters of Horror that was edited by Alden H. Norton. It has some Bradbury in it, some Robert Chambers. But this story was in there as well. I gave it a shot. I, I really loved it. Yeah. And there's a quick forward to the story written by Mr. Norton in the book. And I am just going to borrow liberally from it here <laughs> because it's got some interesting stuff, uh, you know, about some drama in the sh- in the Shelley family yeah. that likely informed this story. So in talking about the story, he writes, The setting is Italy, where Mrs. Shelley had lived a number of happy years with her husband, the poet Percy Shelley. The plot deals with the transference of personalities and the outcome is underscored by heavy but valid morality. Mary Shelley was 34 years old at the time of writing. Her husband had been dead nine years, and so were four of her five children. She spent the rest of her life, as you said, she died in 1851, remaining faithful to Shelley's memory, both in perpetuating his works and in making their years together and the places they lived, an allegorical subplot in almost everything she wrote. He did not deserve it. I like that this editor has a very firm opinion about this. He did not deserve it. He had brought mistresses right into their home when she was ill, was the indirect cause of the death of one of their children, drove his first wife to suicide, and so enraged his father, Sir Timothy Shelley, that the latter cut off Shelley's annual allowance of 6,000 pounds, probably the equivalent of $100,000 a year in terms of today's buying power. After his son's death, Sir Timothy contributed to the support of Mary Shelley and her surviving child only on condition that she would not permit Shelley's unpublished works to appear in print while he lived. That's how much he hated Percy. Although wrong in suppressing his son's writing, Sir Timothy was not far off in his appraisal of the character of the poet of sweetness and light. Had Shelley lived, he would likely, quite likely, have discarded Mary and flitted on to some other woman. Little wonder that Mary Shelley strove to stress morality and the transformation. The reader will find in this story strong elements of Percy Shelley, his affectations, his life, and his philosophy. Although Mary Shelley may have always remained loyal to her husband, she must have been aware of her fate had he lived. Almost without exception, her writing is weighted with an oppressive sense of gothic horror. So that's what he wrote about the story. I thought it was really interesting. Yeah. And I was reading it. I had all that stuff in mind that, that this really might be about Percy in a lot of ways. Ah, yes, yeah. Provide some good context. So let's talk about it. So on with the story. It is narrated by this guy, Guido. It's kind of his life story. It has some real weird elements to it. He's from Genoa, a large city in Italy on the Mediterranean. He had an an idyllic childhood. His father was wealthy, but kind of a jerk. He was fun, but nutty, but mean. Sounds very bipolar to me. Yeah, Mary dispatches this in a very quick line about the father. He generous and noble, but, but capricious and tyrannical at once fostered and checked the wild impetuosity of my character, making obedience necessary, but inspiring no respect for the motives which guided his commands. Just that one line tells you so much, though. Guido's father didn't attach any meaning to the punishments that he dispatched on his son. He just wanted obedience. So it's kind of like that kid who's grounded all the time or has a helicopter parent that is constantly saying, don't do that, do this, don't do that, do this. They don't really get a sense of, what they're doing wrong, they just know they have to answer yeah. to that person. And when that kid grows up and gets out of the house, you got to look out because that sort of unbridled freedom can lead to some wild behavior, you know, <laughs> yeah. like a kid that gets to college that's been raised that way, you know, and burns out in three months from drinking and partying because they can't handle the freedom suddenly. So they want to do everything. Yeah. And Guido says it. He says to be a man free 
independent, or in better words, insolent and domineering was the hope and prayer of my rebel heart. So he's just going to turn out that way. Right, yeah. So uh, Guido's father and his buddy Torella, who was in exile, he had as a daughter, this girl, Juliet. Now, since Torello was in exile, he entrusted his daughter's care to Guido's dad. Right. So Guido wanted to hate this kid for coming in and taking all of his thunder. But right. when he met her, he was like, oh, she's really sweet and nice. And he just wants to take care of her. And he loved her. Right. We've got another scenario where a ward enters the picture suddenly. And I swear, if this had been a boy, he would have been in a lot of trouble because he would have been a rival. Oh, right. But yeah. since, since Juliet is so beautiful, Guido doesn't resent her being there. They spend years together and they grow up. At one point, when Guido was 11 and she was 8, a cousin of Guido's came around for a visit. And he was an older kid. Uh, She says uh, he seemed an adult to them. Right. But he took a shine to Juliet and creeped up on her, which is really disturbing because she's 8. Yeah. She's 8 years old. Well, the events... There are historical events referenced throughout the story, and those events took place in the early 1400s. So that's our our setting. Right. And an eight-year-old girl in the 1400s, that's eight years old. You're an old maid in those days. (laughs) Back then it was like married at five, divorced at six, having drinks with my girls at seven. I don't need no man to tell me what to do. In those days, eight years old, that's when you have the eat, pray, love phase of your life. In the 1400s. So, you know, not as creepy as you think. It's just a different time. I, yeah, I guess uh, it's a different time. I have, uh, I got to not use my modern sensibilities in, That's right. in judging a previous culture. So <laughs> Guido defended her and he chased off the sex offender cousin. It was then that Guido realized that he loved her, loved her, not as a sister, but as a romantic interest. He swore that one day they would marry. Right. He kind of forces her into an oath. Yeah. He takes her around to the chapel and says, you have to swear an oath that you're going to marry me. And she does it because, you know, she's eight and impressionable. So years pass. Torella comes back and he's totally wealthy. He gets his daughter back into his house. Guido's dad dies. But on his deathbed, Juliet and Guido promise that they will be married to one another. They're going to execute on that oath. And Guido's 17 at this time. There's kind of a switcheroo. And Guido says when his father died, he had been magnificent to prodigality, meaning he'd basically been so generous with his money that there was none left Uh for Guido to inherit. But now, Torella, because he's grateful to Guido's father for having raised his daughter, he can repay that by taking Guido in. Mm -hmm. And so Guido has now got this opportunity to regain his lost fortune so you know he's bailed out without having to do anything to help himself. Right. He still has some of the estates from his father, but he doesn't have any money. Terrell is just going to take care of that for him. But before getting married, Guido wants to sow his wild oats and see the world. So off he goes to Paris. And mm-hmm. he's a handsome guy and fun and a jerk. But folks dug him, so he was successful. He's successful socially. So he's a spoiled kid. Yeah. It looks to me like people were friends with him because he had money and liked to party. But the way he's getting money... When he when his purse is empty, is he sells off the only things that were left to him by his father, which is land. Ah, I see. The family owns a bunch of estates, and one by one, he's selling them off so that he could keep it the latest fashions. And often, he's selling them off at a huge loss. He's not doing it. He's doing it because he needs the money, not because he's thought about it at all. Right. Which is so sad. His family has held on to these estates for generations, and he's such a brat. He doesn't even care. He's just selling their stuff off to keep his purse flush. But due to some political upheaval, his popularity wanes, and so does his fortune. Right. France is kind of a mess, because this was all happening during the reign of Charles the Sixth. Charles, he suffered from intermittent bouts of madness. 
So he couldn't really be trusted to rule over all of France. And that allowed other members of the royal family to exercise their own almost royal power in Mm -hmm. the parts of the country that they controlled. And they were even siphoning off part of the royal revenue for their own purposes. And what he references here in terms of turmoil, the Duke of Orleans was murdered by the Duke of Burgundy. And that freaks everybody out because now it looks like there's going to be some kind of civil war. Mm -hmm. And I think that the Duke of Burgundy had to flee. But he made the lamest proclamation after he had, you know, hired the people to kill the Duke or whatever, where he put out a proclamation that says, you know, it was for the good of the realm. And he accused the the Duke of Orleans of trying to bring about the king's death by black magic. (laughs) (laughs) So that's why he had to do it. Of course. Yeah, man. Which is hilarious. You got to kill a sorcerer, dude. (laughs) You got to put them down, even if people don't understand. So that's just kind of the environment in which this is happening. So he decided that he wanted to go home to Genoa, but he had kind of squandered everything. So mm-hmm. he sold off the last of his stuff to make it look like he was rich, bought some fancy clothes and jewels. Right. He gets together with his fancy friends and they're going to come with him back to Genoa. So it looks like he's returning with an entourage and lots of money. Right. When in fact, he sold off his last estate for half of what it was worth. So he came back to Genoa. He felt like everybody knew that he was a fraud, but he, again, kept up his appearances. In his heart, he felt like a total loser. And Torella didn't come to see him when he came into town. But Guido should have gone to see him because, you know, he's the younger guy and he's elder. It's really on Guido to have done this, but he didn't. And he's been such an arrogant jerk that he thought Torello was going to come see him. So instead of him connecting with his adopted father, uh, he just decided to stay out all night and have an orgy and then sleep all day. Yeah, he's just he's just having parties, partying all night, sleeping all day. He finally got the ovaries up to see Torella and Juliet. Torella welcomed him back like a prodigal son. Juliet was lovely and kind and beautiful. Everyone was happy, so now they were to be married. But Torella said, if you marry my daughter, you get my riches, but you have to chill out. You have to settle down and be a proper husband. Mm-hmm. He tells Torella, you don't owe me. We're in love and you, we can do what we want. <laughs> you don't have to boss me. So uh, Guido tried to get Juliet to turn on her father, but she's like, um, no, he's a good guy and you're being unreasonable. So just stop it and chill out and let's get married. Well, it's not even like... She's saying, you have to go to work at my father-in-law's box factory if you want to marry me. No. Torella is saying, you can have all my money and be rich. Just don't gamble with it. Yeah. Don't pay for hookers with it. Yeah. And don't give it away. <laughs> there, are condi- there are conditions on him getting free money that he doesn't even have to pay back. And that enrages him. <laughs> and also, there was a deal made between Guido's father and Torello earlier about the marriage that would have been in place had he not sold off all of his land. Now he's bringing nothing to the table. Yeah. So he doesn't have anything to negotiate with. There had been a contract, but he rendered it void by what he did in France. Yeah. But still, Torello is going to let him marry his daughter. Like, that's how nice this guy is. That's how nice he is. Yes, as long as he agrees to the the, the contract that he proposes, which means, you know, he uses the money responsibly. Yeah, and don't be an asshole. At this point in the story, he says he's embarrassed about the way he behaved then. So there is eventually some redemption going on, but at what cost? Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I was I was pretty into the story at, at this at this point. Good. So he does something really awful. He gets some of his hoodlum buddies to try and kidnap Juliet. He wants to run off with her. He wants to spirit her away. Since since he's not going to be allowed to marry her unless he submits to the conditions, he's just going to take her. And he gets his buddies together to help him. Yeah, right? but it doesn't work out because they're a bunch of idiots. And they end up getting caught and two city guards are seriously injured. Right, in the fight. So he goes to prison, Guido. But Torello gets him out. And Torello says, mm-hmm. dude, just calm down. You, I'll still let you marry my daughter, but you got to stop being a dick. <laughs> and then Guido's still like, how dare you tell me how to live my life? All he wants is to be the master of everything. <sighs> That's all he wants. 
It's what his rebel heart wants. Well, Guido, even after he's been freed from prison, he tries one more time to steal the daughter away to France, to basically a life of poverty. But uh, his plots are discovered. And this time they say, you do have a little bit of property property left, but you've been such a criminal that we're going to take that away from you. (laughs) They banish him. At this point, he still could have gotten out of it if he had just promised the bar got so low that he just says, please, it will let you stay. Just don't try to steal my daughter again. <laughs> he will not make any such promise. And, of course, all of his friends have deserted him at this point because he doesn't have money no, anymore. No. So he's on his own. So he goes off to figure out how to get revenge because mm-hmm. that's that's all he's got left now. Because this right. guy has been such a complete jerk to him <laughs> that mm-hmm. he needs to get vengeance. So he wanders along by the seaside. He's broke. He's weaponless. He thinks about becoming a pirate, but then he's like, I kind of suck. I'm not really tough or anything like that. And I'm poor. I don't really have anything to offer. So eh, what am I going to do? Yeah, he can't go back to Paris because he's poor. And his friends, they're not going to be into hanging out with him anymore because he doesn't have the Coke. He doesn't have the tiger on a leash. No. Nope. doesn't have any of the stuff that he needs to pass in rich society. As he's on the beach, he's ready to give up. And a big storm hits. The sky is dark, lots of thunder and wind. And a ship gets blown onto some of the rocks nearby. And it gets totally smashed into them. It's not just a you know a hole gets poked. It's like exploding ship, yeah. wood everywhere. Sailors are screaming. The ship's going down fast. It's horrible. Even Guido, the jerk Guido, feels really bad about this happening to these poor people. I had been fascinated to gaze till the end. At last, I sank on my knees. I covered my face with my hands. I again looked up. Something was floating on the billows towards the shore. It neared and neared. Was that a human form? It grew more distinct, and at last a mighty wave lifting the whole freight lodged it upon a rock. A human being bestriding a sea chest. A human being. Yet was it one? Surely never such had existed before. A misshapen dwarf with squinting eyes, distorted features and body deformed till it became a horror to behold. My blood, lately warming towards a fellow being so snatched from a watery tomb, froze in my heart. The dwarf got off his chest. He tossed his straight, straggling hair from his odious visage. By Saint Beelzebub, he exclaimed, I have been well bested. He looked round and saw me. Oh, by the fiend, here is another ally of the mighty one. To what saint did you offer prayers, friend, if not to mine? Yet I remember you not on board. So this sassy devil-loving dwarf shows up. <laughs> he's he's really odd, though. I mean, he's got he's not a typical dwarf. He's got these really overly long arms, it seems. So Guido tries to talk to him, but the dwarf is like, wait, I can't hear you. Let me turn down the storm. And he puts up his arms into the air, and the storm goes away. And then he goes, okay, what were you saying? <laughs> and Guido's like, what is going on? Right, so the dwarf's got some kind of magical power. So the dwarf is like, don't be scared. Let's be buds. Freaked out, Guido doesn't shake hands with him. And the dwarf goes, well, okay, we won't be buds. How about companions? And he warms up to the dwarf a little bit. And then he tells his tale of self-inflicted woe to the dwarf. And when the tale is ended, the dwarf laughs long and loud. The rocks echoed back the sound. Hell seemed yelling around me. I, I like this part. The dwarf says, so thou too hast fallen through thy pride. And though bright as the sun of morning, thou art ready to give up thy good looks, thy bride, and thy well-being, rather than submit thee to the tyranny of good. (laughs) And that encapsulates obsession, right? I'm going to give up everything chasing after this stupid bad decision before just submitting to what's best for you, you know, before submitting to taking care of yourself. He just won't do it. And the dwarf recognizes Yeah, the dwarf says, dude, you need revenge. 
Yes. <laughs> Some good advice there. Mm-hmm. Guido's like, but how? And the dwarf says, check it out. Well, actually, the dwarf actually says, if I were you, I'd get revenge. So it's like he's already subtly doing a switch between the two of them, which I thought oh, was interesting. Yeah, yeah, I didn't, I didn't catch that. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. And, and Guido's like, I don't have any cash. Get re- I can't get revenge because everything's about money. To yeah. He can't even imagine doing anything unless he's got a ton of dough. How is he supposed to get anything done? The dwarf goes over and he pulls out this chest, the chest that he was floated in on. He opens it up. It's full of jewels and gold and all that jazz. The dwarf says, you can have all of this if we just switch bodies. What? One, that's crazy, but you stop the wind and the storm. So maybe you can do that. But no way, because that's not going to help me. If I'm going to be a yeah. creepy, weird, long-armed dwarf man, that's not going to help me get my <laughs> woman. You know, that's going to be a problem. And the dwarf says, no, 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 not forever. Just three days. Let me have your body for three days. Then we'll do a body swap back and you get to keep all this gold. When this is one of those things with... Um fiction you know when you have contracts in fiction or myth Mm -hmm. they're usually honored you know the deal is honored but there's a trick in how the deal was written or something yeah but in real life i've dealt with all sorts of contracts and so often they're just completely disregarded (laughs) yes somebody makes an agreement with you if if they're untrustworthy that agreement doesn't mean anything right but for some reason when psychologically when somebody says let's make an agreement people think well that's protection yeah we're submitting to an agreement so i must be able to trust this and it's so not the case no no but guido is thinking that this guy is some kind of wizard or elf or something and that he's heard in stories about magic that if a wizard or elf or some supernatural creature promises you something they have to keep their promises (laughs) right so he's like, well, I got nothing to lose. So let's, yeah, let's do this. Yes. They switch bodies. The dwarf uh, gives him plenty of food down by the beach and says, you stay here for three days. And so he waits there for three days. And guess what? Three days go by. No dwarf. Yep. Tricked. Ha! He did not honor that contract. <laughs> it's a really stressful part of the story, though, because, and I thought Mary Shelley was very clever in that she didn't do some kind of switcheroo thing where he had to go live the dwarf's life and, like, learn about dwarf culture and, what's, you know, or he didn't have to do any <laughs> right. of that business. He just had to lay there with his treasure on the beach, wondering what his body was doing and waiting for those three days to end. So it's a very tense scene. So he thinks, okay, I got to go out and find my body and this dwarf. After that time has lapsed, he has this terrible dream where he he sees Juliet being seduced by the dwarf, but the dwarf in his body. Of course, yeah. Yeah, so he's got to get to Genoa to know for sure if that's what's happening. But he's got to be sneaky to get there because if people see a dwarf walking into town, kids are likely to stone him to death Mm -hmm. because, you know, people are pretty prejudiced back in the, those days. Yeah. So he sneaks into town, finds out that dwarf in Guido's body is totally going to marry Juliet. Yes. And there was some good body switching stuff here. It says, I had somewhat accustomed to my distorted limbs. This is when he starts walking to get into town. None were ever so ill-adapted for a straightforward movement. It was with infinite difficulty that I proceeded. It's almost like green magic that we talked about last week. You got to learn the rules of this new realm. And at first it's hard for him to puzzle out even how to get this thing to move. I was just glad there was a little detail like that. Yeah. If we're going to have a body snatching story. So he has to creep around town to get news about this marriage. And he has to actually find somebody who's as creepy as him to give him the news, which I thought was funny, too. (laughs) (laughs) You know, nobody else is going to talk to him. But he found another creep and that creep told him what was up. He realizes how badly he's messed up. And how nice Torello was to him and how great Juliet was and what an utter and total dick he has been. Yeah. But it took this. Like, this is where he finally got to the bottom and realized that he had been wrong. Well, the dwarf actually kind of illustrated to him what he should have done because the dwarf showed up in town. Yep. Went to Torello, said, you know what? I'm real sorry. Everything I did was ridiculous. He submitted to the rules. 
and he was welcomed back. It's like it's like the story of the prodigal son yeah. in the Bible. They go, you know what? All is forgiven because of your repentance of your past deeds. And if as long as you commit to being a good dude going forward, then then we can do this. Yeah. So he the dwarf showed him what he should have done. Well, he knows he has to stop dwarfing Guido's body. Like there's mm-hmm. just no getting around it. So he gets a knife and he's going to make him stick to his promise. So that night before the wedding. Uh, the dwarf in Guido is having this romantic scene with Juliet. He can't wait for the wedding. He can't wait to be married to her. He's walking down the street and he's calling up to her. I think she's in her window. Guido is hiding, watching this happen. After everyone else leaves, Guido Dwarf jumps out and brandishes his knife at Dwarf and Guido's body. And he's like, we had a deal. Dwarf and Guido's body says, I ain't leaving. I got it great. <laughs> dwarf Guido attacks Dwarf and Guido's body and they tussle. Juliet sees this. She screams. Dwarf Guido gets the knife on Dwarf and Guido's body's throat and he's like, kill me and you'll kill any chance you'll have of getting your body back. Right. It's like, ooh, man, he's got a good point there. But he thinks about this, but he just can't bear the thought of evil dwarf getting to his Juliet. So even if he's going to die, it doesn't matter. He has to protect her. That's the crucial decision. Yeah, and then that's also the virtuous decision. You know, he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about her. So they end up finding some more. Dwarf Guido stabs Dwarf and Guido's body in the side while throwing himself on Dwarf and Guido's body's sword. And they both go down. And then he wakes up in bed. Juliet is there. She's happy. She's smiling at him. He goes, "Ah, give me a mirror, quick. And he looks and he's back to himself. Incoherently, I at first talked of the dwarf and his crimes and reproached Juliet for her too easy admission of his love. She thought me raving, as well she might, and yet it was some time before I could prevail on myself to admit that the Guido whose penitence had won her back for me was myself. And while I cursed bitterly the monstrous dwarf and blessed the well-directed blow that had deprived him of life, I suddenly checked myself when I heard her say, Amen, knowing that him whom she reviled was my very self. A little reflection taught me silence. A little practice enabled me to speak of that frightful night without any very excessive blunder. The wound I had given myself was no mockery of one. It was long before I recovered. And as the benevolent and generous Torella sat beside me, talking such wisdom as might win friends to repentance, and my own dear Juliet hovered near me, administering to my wants and cheering me by her smiles, the work of my bodily cure and mental reform went on together. I have never, indeed, wholly recovered my strength. My cheek is paler since, my person a little bent. Juliet sometimes ventures to allude bitterly to the malice that caused this change. But I kiss her on the moment and tell her all is for the best. I am a fonder and more faithful husband, and true is this. But for that wound, never had I called her mine. I did not revisit the seashore, nor seek for the fiend's treasure. Yet, while I ponder on the past, I often think and my confessor was not backward in favouring the idea, that it might be a good rather than an evil spirit, sent by my guardian angel to show me the folly and misery of pride. So well at least did I learn this lesson, roughly taught as I was, that I am known now by all my friends and fellow citizens by the name of Guido Il Cortese. And uh, now we know the rest of the story because Guido Il Cortez invented spaghetti. He did. Mm. <laughs> no, that's not true. And it's true. delicious. <laughs> that's not true. Uh, so, yeah, that is the end of the story. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, maybe the dwarf wasn't an evil spirit, but it was a good spirit that was trying to teach him a lesson. It did. Greg Johnson yes. was our reader. I want to thank him once again. But he also, when he sent this over, had some thoughts about the story. Yeah. He wrote, it's a stunningly empathetic and sympathetic portrait of the destructive male ego, considering it was written by a woman. I agree. Well... 
Yeah, she would know, being that she was married to Percy Shelley. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's that that's what it is. It's a it's a it's a good way to encapsulate the story. It's a portrait of the destructive male ego. Fortunately, in that story, and this is what I feel like is the fiction of it. Usually, those types of people never realize the air of their ways. Like that is just who they are. Right. He was on the beach, had nothing, and he was still plotting revenge because of his ego. <laughs> like you know, like it took a supernatural dwarf to get him to change his mind. And unfortunately, most people don't get a supernatural dwarf no. to come help them out. The woman you love may move on. And then when you see that happening, you go, I got to change everything because this person has taken what I wanted and I didn't realize what I had. So in some ways, it's kind of a metaphor for that experience. Maybe. Do you think that she was in writing this, that this had something to do with what she hoped would have happened with her husband? I think so. I mean, that's what that forward seem to suggest yeah. that maybe this was because it has that it's a very moral ending yeah uh, you're going to lose everything you have unless you submit to the good so i think it definitely reflects that another thing that greg wrote us he said this could be interpreted as lynchian mm-hmm. as if the dwarf is a kind of avatar like the burnt guy behind the diner in Mulholland drive killer bob and twin peaks or robert blake's eyebrowless mystery man and lost highway Characters who seem to make the protagonist do things but are the protagonist, as if Guido went nuts on the beach and split into two personas, which makes the climactic knife fight a suicide attempt. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting reading of the story. Maybe there was no dwarf. Yeah. It was just in his misery, he kind of went nuts, and when he came out of it, he decided to make the right decision. There is a dwarf, actually, literally in the story. Like, doesn't she say that, wow, isn't that crazy that you were attacked by the dwarf? Or is that not? Well, he's he's telling us the story. So, sure. I mean, oh, it might course. be part right. of his delusion. Yeah. I mean, a third person does see the dwarf <laughs> attack at the end. <laughs> right. But yeah, it's it's his inter- his interpretation of events as they as they followed. So yeah, yeah. So th- those were good notes from Greg. I was glad he yeah glad he suggested that stuff. Yeah, I don't have much more to say about the story other than I really liked it and I'm looking forward to reading more of Mary Shelley's work. Yeah, absolutely. So next week we're going to cover a story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Okay, you may have heard of him before. We've covered him on the show. Uh-huh. Uh, he wrote some Sherlock Holmes, right? That's uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. That's him, yeah. The Horror of the Heights. The Horror of the Heights. I like it already. We're going to check out some Conan Doyle. Supposedly this one is a little on the Lovecraftian side, which I'm excited to check out. I have yet to read it. Yeah, I haven't either, but I am afraid of heights, so I'm already scared. (laughs) Good? (laughs) (laughs) It is good. Yeah, I don't know if I want you scared for a whole week. You know, once I read it and know what's going on, then maybe I won't be as scared. Or it'll be really terrifying and then... You're going to be a mess, man. I'm gonna, I am gonna. might be a mess, yeah. Well, we'll see how it turns out. I want to thank Greg for doing an excellent job and for those uh, sweet notes. With that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com.